Hey, legends, you know, none of our interviews or episodes ever date, ever. They are all timeless and ready for you for when you're ready to listen. Download the lot and rip in. The great ones, they're different. They really are. Not better, just different. Sure, there's a physical power, a mental strength, a complex but resolute constitution too. There's a whole lot more than just the measurables. That's something else, that intangible. It separates us from them. Welcome to the Legends series on Andy Raymond Unfiltered. This one, he had it all. Every attribute needed to build a footballer, he had it. There was nothing he couldn't do. Among the absolute best in the country, all the while with a certain charm and decency that was born by the country. But who is Laurie Daly? I think he's someone that's genuine, someone that that cares, uh, and someone that's very honest. Um, I think all those things probably sum me up um, and, and a good friend, um, regardless of who they are. If they're a mate, they're a mate. 244 games for your beloved Canberra Raiders, 26 origins, 26 tests. Where did the love of rugby league begin? The love for me, Andy, was when I played football in the backyard growing up in June um, I, I grew up in a family of eight. I've got seven sisters. I was lucky enough that I lived next door to my cousins and they had a family of eight as well, but they were six boys and two girls. So I was able to spend the majority of my time uh, in their backyard and in the summer you'd play cricket, in the winter you'd play rugby league, you'd play all types of sports. Um, And I suppose it was uh, the influence that uh, my older cousins had on me. Uh, running around in the backyard with them, playing football, um, just seeing um, what they did and how they went about things. And then basically just just watching games of football when I was young on television. That's how my love started and that's where it all happened in the backyard of my cousin's house. Anyone that saw you play as a mid-teen said you were a freak. You were playing A-grade for the mighty Juni Diesels at maybe 15 as the story goes, you were spotted by the legendary Don Ferner at a young age and signed to Canberra, but the Steelers came knocking too, didn't they? Yeah, I was offered a, uh, a trial with the Steelers and I went down with a guy uh, by the name of Ricky Keast and Rick ended up playing lower grades for, for South Sydney and um, he was a wonderful footballer. Uh, we both went down there and we, we trialled and obviously... Um, you know, we, we didn't get picked up uh, by the Steelers, but I, I came back home and um, was lucky enough to play first grade for, for Junie. And Don Ferner had actually captain coached Junie to a premiership in the 60s. Okay. And Don knew a lot of people in town. And obviously, because I was only 16 and playing first grade, sort of word filtered back to Don that there was this young guy playing first grade, you should come and have a look. So obviously uh, Don was able to sort of drive over and, and had a, a look at me playing and I sat down with myself and, and my parents and um, obviously uh, wanted me to go and play with, with the Raiders. And, you know, he sold me the vision of the club and spoke about how they were young 
uh, team that was on the rise and, you know, they just signed, um, you know, a couple of uh, really successful players. I think Mal was there probably 12 months before. I think he came in 85 with Gary Belcher. Yep. Um, and, and just started to speak about, you know, what type of club Canberra was. And the fact that it was probably only two and a half hours from home was another contributing factor. Um, and, you know, I had some offers from um, a couple of other clubs, um, but my heart was probably with the Raiders and, and more so about, you know, Don coming and showing some interest and then it being closer to Juno. You can't get away with that, Laws. Which other clubs had a little bit of a nibble? Uh, Manly. Uh, certainly Manly were one. Uh, the Roosters uh, were another. Um, and for me, you know, it was all about being a young boy and probably growing up in the bush. I never thought that I would really probably fit in straight away to the city. So I uh, elected to, to sort of go to Canberra. It felt more like it was going to be home for me. Uh, I was a country boy, born and bred, and I just felt as though Canberra would be the perfect fit. It is a big life transition, isn't it, for a young bloke from Juneau, even moving to Canberra, which isn't a huge city, but for a young fellow that grew up with seven sisters that babied him the whole way through, and they did, mate, it's a big, big transition. Yeah, it's, it's daunting. Um, I can remember, you know, when I first left home, I remember uh, going to live with a family uh, at night time uh, in your bedroom. You'd be sort of crying yourself to sleep because you missed your family, you were homesick. Yeah. Um, in Canberra, uh, well, I actually lived in Queanbeyan to start with. So, uh, you know, Queanbeyan was a reasonably sized place, a lot bigger than Juneau, but it was still first time I'd ever lived away from home. And, and given I was a bit of a, yeah, well, I was probably, you know, soft in terms of being a, a mummy's boy and I had everything done for me, it was the first time in my life that I had to show a little bit of independence and um, learn to do things. And, um, yeah, that, so that was quite strange for me um, and then you know, going into this football club uh, turning up knowing absolutely no one uh, being a shy boy just sitting there waiting to take directions and being told what to do uh, you know not being open to going up and saying g'day to people yeah. um, more sort of conservative and sort of sitting back and waiting for people to say g'day to me before I'd approach them and you know, if someone spoke to me, I'd speak back to them, but I'd never start a conversation. And, you know, I was a bit shy. And um, I think football sort of helped because once you start training and once you start to play, you start to form bonds and friendships. And, and that's where it all uh, happens for me or happened for me. From that answer, I want to talk about your mental toughness and your resilience, which I admire and have admired for 20 years. Natural or something you had to manufacture? I think um, a bit of both, Andy, to be honest with you. I think, uh, you know, growing up in the country, I, I suppose we always felt, though, you know, growing up in the bush, we, we didn't, you know, we probably thought we, we couldn't achieve yeah. because we didn't have the facilities, you know, we weren't playing against, you know, um, other guys in tougher competitions, so to speak. Um, we were probably like the the, the, the the little brother that always carried a bit of a chip on his shoulder that... You know, he wasn't getting looked at. And, um, I just I just think that that sort of made me determined when I got my opportunity um, that, you know, growing up, I always wanted to prove people that I could do something. Um, and then as you get in the system, you develop uh, skills to become resilient. You, you, 
develop uh, skills to be um, tougher uh, and, and test yourself and, and not not give up. And I think that was one of the things I learned with the Raiders. It, it's not about giving up to someone else. It's about giving up to yourself. Um, and everyone's threshold of pain or threshold of being strong mentally is completely different. But as long as you know you've done everything in your power and you've done it to the best of your ability and you haven't given up, um, I think that's a that's a strong trait to, to have. Who's mentally tough in your eyes? Is there someone from those early days you looked at on the training field or the playing field and you thought, okay, that's what I want to be like. He's the benchmark. Yeah, I think... Um, when I first started with the Raiders, guys like uh, Dean Lance oh, uh, was yes. one guy that was uh, tough and, and mentally strong. Um, you know, you'd watch him on a Tuesday night and, you know, he'd bash himself around during a game on a Sunday and, and Dean had bad knees and shoulders and a lot of other things were breaking down on him. But, you know, the way that he attacked the game and played the game and the way that he would be after a game and then to see him back up at training, hobbling around on his knees. But he was one of those guys that really wanted to, to be out there and, and competing and showing everyone, regardless of the injury that he carried, that he wanted to still be a part of that environment. Um, and I think, you know, that sets a great example for all the other players in the team. They look at Dean, who was captain at the time, saying, oh, that's our captain out there. He's doing it. And, you know, he could easily sit on the sideline and, you know, have ice... Uh, on his legs and, you know, receiving physio from the, uh, yeah, from the physio, um, but treatment from the physio, but he, he wasn't like that. He was a guy that wanted to lead by example all the time and be out there leading the way. So he was a guy that I reckon uh, was mentally tough. Then, of course, you got Mal. Um, Mal broke his arm, I don't know how many times, uh, and there was always a question mark about whether he would come back the same player um, and he probably broke it, Andy, probably four to six times. Yeah. And he went through a real, really rotten trot between 87 and probably 90 where he just kept on injuring it and there were some real concerns that he might not ever come back. But, he, you know, he went from through that period to going on and, and captaining the Raiders to premierships and uh, becoming an immortal and, and one of the all-time great players. So he was another one that showed great resilience as well. You're listening to Andy Raymond Unfiltered, the Legends series. We have corporate and private sponsorship packages available. You set the terms. For further information on how you can become part of the team, go to the website andyraymondunfiltered.com.au and hit the sponsorship tab. Laurie, what did you possess physically? Was that natural talent or was that coach talent or was it a combination? Oh, I think I was I was um, a naturally talented kid. Yeah. Um, looking back now, I can say that, but at the time I never thought I was. I thought I just had to work extremely hard yep. and, and I did work extremely hard. Um, but it was raw talent. Um, and one thing you find as you progress through the grades that raw talent is not enough, you know, you have to be disciplined, you have to be working on your skills, you have to be mentally strong. Um, you've got to be able to handle setbacks and all those things happen to you at any uh, at some stage during your, your football or, or sporting career. Um, so I think while I always had natural talent, 
if I didn't apply myself and I didn't have strong leaders around me at the time and strong coaches, then you could have quite easily gone off the rails. Um, so I was lucky the environment I was in um, was conducive to me being able to to be the best player I was. Um, and, you know, the coaches, the players, they all make you better. And when you're in a professional environment, that's what they want for you because at the end of the day, if you're bettering yourself and you're getting better, well, you're helping the team. And, and the team is all about having that success at the end of the year, winning premierships. It's not about playing for individual awards. It's about playing to win the comp. And that's what I was lucky enough to be a part of at Canberra. Loz, what do you remember of your first grade debut? The year was 1987. Um, I actually played against uh, Wes and I scored a couple of tries. Uh, I actually recall the lead up uh, to me being in that team. Um, I think I played a couple of weeks beforehand the Bulldogs in the SG ball. Yep. And I'd scored a few tries and and in those days, because I was a contracted player, even though I was playing um, in Jersey Fleet and, and Bradley Clyde was playing in SG Ball, we had to turn up for training with the first grade teams because on the Tuesday night, you'd have a club session. Yep. So, you know, the 23s, reserve grades, first grades and anyone else that was contracted, young guys, they'd have to turn up and you'd train as a club. So I turned up on this particular night and I didn't know whether Wayne Bennett knew who I was or not. I just turned up every Tuesday for <laughs> six weeks and seven weeks and, you know, no one had said anything to me. I just, you know, <laughs> ran around and did what I had to do. And, um, and um, Wayne sort of pulled me aside and he goes, uh, and, and I'd scored yeah, a couple of tries against Canterbury and, and he goes, hey, how do you reckon you went on the weekend? And... And I had a really good game, but I wasn't going to say that to Wayne. I said, oh, you know, I went okay. I probably could have uh, done X, Y and Z a little bit better. And Wayne, in the fashion uh, that only he can do, he said, well, if that's the best you got, he said, the Raiders are in some trouble, aren't they? And walked away. And I just went, wow, wow. Brutal. The coach doesn't like me here. And then about, I reckon, two weeks later, I, he picked me from, I, I think I progressed, I went to 23s, and then um, he, he selected me out of 23s into into the first grade side. So um, it all sort of happened pretty quickly and happened around origin time. So I think he was just obviously trying to keep my feet on the ground without letting me, you know, get too carried away and r- realising that, you know, I may have had some talent, but if you want to play first grade, then you're going to have to continue to work hard and it's not going to come easy to you. So, um, yeah, so he sort of put, put me back in my place a little bit and then sort of a couple of weeks later, just out of nowhere, sort of gave me an opportunity. I don't know what's a better one, that one or the Brent Tate story who we interviewed on the Legends series a few weeks back. And Brent was playing for the Broncos and was selected to make his Queensland debut. And they were at a presentation night with the Broncos when it was announced. And Wayne walked up to Tatey as the story goes and says, congratulations, but that's only four people's opinion, and turned and walked away. <laughs> he was quite brutal at, at times, Wayne, but he was um, he was straight to the point and, and never uh, mucked around with his words. But if you came back and you were proving him wrong, um, he admired that or he would be giving you 
some words of encouragement in his way yep. uh, because he knew you had plenty of talent and you weren't utilising that talent. And it would be either a ship up or ship out type mentality with him. Uh, but he just knew what to say at the right moment. He knew what buttons to push. And I think anyone that's been coached by him has so much respect for him because he was very big on, on discipline um, and very, very good at being able to push the right buttons to get you to be at your best. And not only at your best, you know, playing-wise, but also um, training-wise. He certainly read a lot of Vince Lombardi books, that's for sure. At the end of that year, you and Glenn Lazarus actually sat on the bench for the grand final but didn't get a run. Yeah, that was 1987, and I was wrapped up 17 years of age sitting on the bench for a grand final. So to be perfectly honest, looking back now, I sat there and I really wanted – like I wanted the Raiders to win, but it was like, how good is this? Like I've just – I'm just in heaven here sitting on the bench, so regardless of what happens – I've had, a, I've had a great year. Um, so I, I probably wasn't as invested as a lot of the other guys were. Yep. Because highly unlikely that I would have got a run. I was just there on standby. And while, and I was only 17, so I really didn't think anything of it other than, oh, well, we'll, we'll win more comps or we'll get opportunities to mm. play in grand finals. Now, whether that was arrogant or not, I'm not quite sure, but that's the what I was feeling. And I think... Canberra really came alive in 87 when the Raiders made the grand final. And, you know, they had ticker tape parades before the grand final and it was just one of those um, things that you'll always remember because everyone was just excited and regardless of what happened on grand final day, it was always a successful year for the club. You know, it was their first ever grand final they'd been in and, um, you know, a lot of people had doubted the Raiders because when they first came in, they used to get hammered all the time. A lot of people thought they'd never be a successful club, but we certainly proved a, a lot of people wrong. Um, so for me, I remember sitting on the bench. I also remember how hot it was. Yeah. I, I just couldn't believe, um, and it was uh, it would have been close to 35 degrees. Nice. You know, It would have been over 30 degrees uh, on that particular Sunday. And I remember warming up and it was just so warm and everyone was just, you know, um, sweating before we sort of left the, left the dressing sheds. Um, and it was also the last grand final at the SCG uh, against that wonderful manly side coached by the great Bob Fulton. So um, plenty of good memories out of that. But it sort of, yeah, for me, while it was disappointing to have lost and not gone on, I was just extremely happy as a 17-year-old that I was just sitting on the pond. It sounds like you almost thought you were a guest in first grade. Was there a moment... Was there a year? Was there a game that it felt like you belonged? Yeah, that's that's probably true, uh, Eddie. I don't think I ever felt comfortable in 1987, even though I played a couple of games. I, I never thought that I was a first grader and never thought that I was a regular in the team. We spoke about Mal earlier. I got my opportunity in 1988. Um, we played a... I think it was a sevens tournament at Parramatta. Yeah. And if my memory serves me correctly, I think Mal played and broke his arm in that game. And the centres for the Raiders at that time were Peter Jackson and Mal Meninga. Yes. Um, And Chris O'Sullivan was 5'8". So if the season um, started, Mal Meninga and Peter Jackson would have been the centres. Yep. And I, I wouldn't have been given an opportunity. So... 
As it turned out, Mal broke his arm and I was able to, to get a run as the centre. So I um, had that opportunity uh, and made the most of it. And then I ended up, um, yeah, ended up, I think I might, might have played country that year. I think I played country that year uh, with the likes of Peter Sterling and Warren Ryan was the coach. And, um, yeah, John, what the name of John Dorothy, who yeah. was a legend, Joe Cool. Um, so, yeah, so for me it was all sort of, I never felt comfortable and it wasn't until halfway through 88 and I made that country side that I thought, oh, wow, rightio, I'm in, I'm in this first grade side. And then you started to worry about, well, when Mel comes back, yeah. but where am I going to fit into this team? And it's amazing that, you know, we never, in 88, the Raiders probably had the best crop of players that the club have ever had. Yes. But for whatever reason, we couldn't all get on the field at the same time. Mm. And, and we, we, you know, we didn't, um, we made the semis, but we didn't, we didn't um, win the competition. But with the squad that we had, we probably should have that year. Um, but that was the year that I started to feel comfortable, probably halfway through 88. Any elite athlete will tell you it takes more than just being physically fit to be at your best. And our friends at Galaxy Finance can have you at the top of your financial game. From home loans to investments and self-managed super funds, they provide complete solutions. Call Galaxy Finance on 1300 917740 and mention you heard it on Andy Raymond Unfiltered to get an obligation-free chat to see how Galaxy Finance can assist you. In 88, um, Ricky Stewart and Brad Clyde arrived the year before. Yourself, Peter Jackson, Glenn Lazarus arrived. And then in 1989, everything just clicked. It would... Change your life forever and for the better, that grand final. And it wasn't just a grand final. It was an historic one because it was Canberra's first. But it is still the grand final that rates right up there when we are talking best ever. Yeah, and I think um, most people regard it, Andy, as the greatest grand final of all time. And there's a lot of obviously different reasons for that. But... um, it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies to start with. Um, at the start of 88, I actually um, uh, dislocated my shoulder and I looked like being out for the year, but they said that I could continue to play if I strengthened it. So I strengthened my shoulder and then I got through the whole season and they thought, well, you know, you're okay. You don't need an operation in the off-season. Uh, then I was... Um, it was in November, maybe early December. Uh, we had to do a promotion, and it was with um, um, the basketballers, um, uh, the Canberra Cannons yep. at, at the time. And um, uh, so, anyhow, we were doing this sort of promotional um, thing with them on the on the basketball courts, and I'd actually put my hand up to stop uh, one of the passes oh, no. going to another player, and my shoulder popped out. So I had to get my shoulder operated on uh, a reconstruction uh, in in December of 88. So I sort of um, was struggling to get back to the start of 89. And then the start of 89, 
we lost, I think, our first three games and then we may have won a game and then we lost a couple of games and there was talk that Tim Sheens was under the pump and there was talk that Tim Sheens was going to get the sack. Um, and everyone was sort of just going, wow, this this could be very ruthless here. You know, they sacked Tim after, after two years. Um, and then our results were sort of up and down and we never really got going as a team. Um, and then I remember we played a game in Perth and we scored in the last couple of moments. And I think it was Matt Wood scored in the corner mm-hmm. and that kept us alive. And I think we had to win, I think it was seven or eight games if we were to win the grand final. But if we lost that game against the Bulldogs over in Perth, then we would have been out. But somehow we managed to win and then we won again and then we just found our rhythm, we found our confidence and we found our zone and we had great belief in each other. Uh, so it's amazing how things can turn and turn pretty quickly. From the start of the year, inconsistent losing, coach being on the verge of being sacked, <laughs> that sort of all of a sudden finding your rhythm, finding your form and just going on and, and winning that comp in, in 89. I interviewed Mal Meninga recently. He said of 89, Canberra, the city, grew a soul with that win. Do you agree? Yeah, I think... I think that's when uh, the Raiders were certainly a household name. Uh, 87 was probably the start of it yep. when they made the grand final. Um, and then 89 when they won, um, it was just unbelievable um, the amount of support that we had. I can still remember there would have been oh, would have been tens of thousands of people. There would have been at least 10, 15,000 people at the airport. There would have been thousands of people lining the streets uh, from the airport into Queanbeyan uh, and into Camp, uh, and then from Queanbeyan uh, into Canberra. They had two league clubs at the time. Um, and yeah, and then there was thousands at the club and then outside the clubs, um, there was just thousands of people. It was something I've never seen before, ever experienced before. Um, and it was just great to be a part of. And I think Mal said after that game, that was his greatest moment in the sport. Um, and to see someone like Mal who played for Australia and, you know, Queensland and represented, you know, both those jerseys with great distinction, um, yeah, to see him crying after the game was, was pretty spectacular. And, and for us, um, it was a, a lifetime of thinking and dreaming about winning a competition but never actually thinking you would be a part of it. Yeah, I, I used to watch the ABC match of the day as a kid and, and used to just, you know, before the game, watch halftime, go out and kick a footy, come back in at halftime, sit there and watch the game and go back out after the game and yep. kick a footy around. And, you know, just dreaming that you could play one in a real game yeah. and, and watch the grand finals and think, how good would that be? And it's amazing, you know, when you reflect back and you think about your career and you think about where you were um, at different stages of your life when you were a young man growing up and that's all you wanted to do and then to be able to achieve it was, was pretty special. If you want to feel old, I'll reference it by saying that was 31 years ago. Wow. Mate, during the celebrations, did you break the Winfield Cup, Laurie, or not? Or are you claiming innocence still? I'm still claiming innocence. I'll tell you, Andy, I'll tell you the truth. So obviously we're out celebrating all night and we hadn't been to bed. And we have this um, civic parade. So we've got this parade. We're all in um, open-top cars and we're going from Queanbeyan 
to Canberra. And I don't know who it was, but someone gave me the trophy. So I'm sitting at the back with the trophy. And I'm, you know, you know I've had a few. Yeah, I've had more. Yeah. And anyway, we're going along at a reasonable pace. And, you know, you're doing a bit of airing up. You know, you're waving to people and carrying on and yelling out and shouting and how good. And then I felt the car starting to slow down. So I've sort of got my arm around the trophy and the car starts to slow down. And I thought, oh, beautiful, beautiful. I had probably about that much left in my beer. Yeah. And a bottle of beer. So the car starts to slow down. So as the car slows down, I think, oh, this is a good time to have a mouthful. So I pick up my beer and I start to sort of chug it down just to finish it. And I was going for a bit of a skull because, you know, I wanted to layer up with people yeah. around you. So as I've sort of gone and had the big skull, the guy driving the car, he accelerates. Oh. So I've got my arm off the trophy. I'm trying to skull a beer. So as you can imagine, he goes to take off. I'm sort of forward and I'm thinking about myself because I didn't want to embarrass myself and fall off the car. And then I've forgotten about the trophy. So the trophy falls over. And at the base of the trophy, it just cracks. And it was Arthur Sowens' arm was cracked. Norm Proven's leg was cracked. Still the first guy, by the way, to bring those two blokes down in in the one tackle and cause a break. Um, But all our our photos that we celebrated with that day, if you have a look closely, all around the base of the trophy is towels. We had to wrap the towels around it to keep it together with tape and, and we're holding this this trophy up in the middle of uh, Canberra in the Civic Square there and there would have been probably 40, 50,000 people and in the photos all you can see is the towels wrapped around the around the base so it was um, yeah I, I'm blaming whoever gave me that trophy it shouldn't have went to me I love it in 89, you debuted for New South Wales, 12 months later for Australia. For a boy from Juni, is it hard to articulate properly just how important those two milestones were? Yeah. Oh, look, 89 for me, Andy, was just an unbelievable season. And it started with making my origin debut because only a couple of years earlier, I was sitting at home watching New South Wales and, and, and getting upset when they were getting beaten yeah. by Queensland, being so happy when they won. Um, and then to actually walk into the dressing shed in 1987 as a 16- or 17-year-old boy and see a guy like Mal Meninga, and you're just going, well, I don't know whether to go up and ask him for a photo or get, a, get an autograph or just sit there and wait till, wait till he says g'day to me or do I say g'day to him? Do I put my hand out and shake his hand? You just don't know. You know, you're just, you're just unsure of yourself. So 89 was probably surreal. Um, and I was, again, just probably happy to, to, to make the Origin team. Um, and I remember sort of playing in that game and I was marking Mal and, and Mal had a blinder and I think he obviously scored plenty of points that game and I had stud marks all the way down, down my front. He just terrorised me. I was goal kicking. I missed my first shot at goal from in front. Probably hit the, hit the ball boy because he would have been standing somewhere <laughs> <laughs> off to the off to the left. Um but, yeah, it was – and I, I loved it because we were coached by Jack Gibson too, yeah. another um, person that you grew up reading about. Um, but to come up against that Queensland side, honestly, when I ran out, the loud roar of Suncorp was something I'd never experienced. And you could just see that look in their eye that they, they wanted 
to basically just get into you. And um, yeah, and I, I didn't probably understand enough about the history of Origin, and it just showed you how passionate they were. And I never really played my best uh, that that first year in Origin. And after game two, I, I was injured, but I reckon I would have been dropped anyway because okay. I, I just didn't perform well. And I always said to myself, geez, I hope I get another opportunity here because I'm better than that. And I just didn't perform as well as I, I should have. And I was probably overawed and sat back and sort of just was, yeah, just just didn't really get involved as much as I should have. So I always thought to myself, if I ever get another opportunity, um, I certainly won't be uh, won't be sitting back and, and not having a crack. I'll, I'll go for it. But I just had to wait and bide my time, I suppose. A centre that would move on successfully to 5-8. This is a two-pronged question. What's your preferred jersey and where do you think you played your best football? Well, I like playing six. I I, I liked it because I got my hands on the ball uh, a lot more Mm -hmm. and I was a running 5-8. I I wasn't a ball-playing 5-8, although I probably developed some of those skills as I got older. Um, I I, I loved the fact that I was able to play centre early um, because it gave me a, a better understanding of what a 5'8 is looking for and, and for me, what a centre is looking for. So when I moved into 5'8, I actually knew and understood what the centre was trying to do. I understood what type of ball he wanted. I understood what uh, he, he needed. Um, and I always preferred number six. I, okay. I love the fact that I could get my hands on the ball, sometimes as a centre, you, you know, if you want the ball, you've got to go looking for it. Sometimes the ball doesn't come to you, so you've got to go looking for it. But as a 5'8", you could get the ball. You could either go in as a first receiver or you could stand it, you know, a little, with a little bit of width and, and, and receive a, a ball. Um, and I was lucky enough that I played with, you know, I wrote the greatest halfback in, in, in Ricky because he his game uh, helped my game and, and we just suited each other. Um, you know, Ricky could throw a 30-metre spiral and I could be on an edge straight away. He, he could take out three or four defenders with a pass um, and that just made my job so much more easier. Laurie, I recall, and I think it was you telling me, at different times either you or Ricky Stewart, who is your halfback, would basically stay out of a set of six and assess what the defence was doing to plan for your next set. As a footy tragic, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, well, that was Tim Sheens. Uh, Tim Sheens used to have this saying for us. He used to say, uh, one works them and one sets them. And and by that he meant, um, you know, at, at times someone has to take responsibility of working out, you know, if you're under the pump, what are we going to do in the next play? What are we going to do in the next set? Um, so, you know, it might be Ricky and, and Ricky would be playing on the ball and, and Ricky would be just organising what was going on. So, um, and... and you know, I'd have the opportunity to sit back and say, well, right, I've just assessed what's happened here. Um, next time we get the ball, let's look at X, Y, and Z. Uh, majority of the time, though, it was probably more so Ricky uh, that would be looking and seeing and assessing. Um, but that was the little saying that we had. Uh, one works them and one sets them. And that worked for us. Uh, it might not work for everyone, but it's something that I still believe can happen today. And I still see it in games of football where... You know, you see players and in particular playmakers making wrong decisions yeah. and not finishing their sets. And then, you know, they have two or three bad sets in a row. 
Um, we were always taught that don't go any more than, you know, you can't have any more than two sets in a row where they've been poor. You can't finish the set poor two sets in a row. If you do, you, you know, you, you're going to put your team under enormous amounts of pressure. So if you feel as though you're on the back foot for one set and the team's coming at you again, you've got to work out and have someone in the team that you trust and follow that they've got the plan for you to be able to bring you back into the contest. And that's where we were lucky that, you know, if, 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 if uh, Ricky uh, wasn't uh, doing it. And the other, the other guy who was extremely good at it and probably never got the, the, the greatest recognition uh, that he should have, and he was the best player I've ever seen at identifying numbers. So when I mean numbers, if we had four attackers and they had three, he would know when to get the ball and know when to just go bang here. We're going to do this little four on three on the opposition. That was Harry Belcher, our fullback. So Badge was another one who wow. could just sum and sit back and watch. And if you watched any of Gary Belcher's highlights, he was the guy that actually I reckon I certainly learned a lot from and, and where I learn about counting numbers. And I reckon Rick might say the same. Um, he, was, he was the best I'd ever seen at being able to sum it up and know that, you know, if there's four there and we've got five, well, that's where we're going. And he'd call the ball. And we have this overriding call called super. So sometimes, um, you know, the dummy half gets it. I want the ball. Ricky would want the ball. Um, and it was always said to us that if, if, if the super call is not there just to get the ball, the super call is all about when you have identified a weakness in the opposition and you've identified a four on three or something like that in the setup, and you call it, and then the dummy half knows it's got to go to you rather than just calling it for the sake of getting yeah. a run. Um, and that's a, another thing that we used to always sort of do because we'd have, I'd want the ball, Ricky'd want the ball, and Badger go super. And he invariably take the right options. Or if I wanted the ball and Ricky saw something, he'd call super and he'd get the ball yeah. and, and vice versa. So it worked really well, but you were always under pressure because you couldn't do it just to get a run because when you reviewed the tape, if a ball went to you, Shenzi would say, well, why are you getting the ball? And you get exposed. And, yeah, you, yeah, and, and he'd say, well, you know, Rick, did you call Super? And he'd go, yes. he goes, Laurie, why did you call the ball? And unless you saw another option and you said, well, I called Super too. Yeah. <laughs> but, and Steve Wallace used to say, if, if Ricky and I were both calling Super, he would go to Gary Belcher. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, that was something that we always sort of did, and, and we did that well, but Badge, was, he was a master at it. In part two of the Laurie Daly story, the accolades and the truth about a split that threatened one of the game's great partnerships. We hope you're enjoying Andy Raymond Unfiltered. To help us spread the word, we'd love a five-star rating and review wherever you're listening. Come back soon. Legends.